Please be seated. Our sermon text uh, this morning is from Matthew 6, again, verses uh, 1 through 24. Uh, you can find this on page 811 in your pew Bible if you don't have your Bible with you. Hear the Word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father, who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, And where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, grant uh, today that, uh, that by your Spirit's ministry we would hear the music of the gospel that we would hear again the wonder of your approval of your people in Jesus Christ. And that not only would we hear that music, but that 
we would be stirred in our hearts to sing it, to celebrate it again. And we pray, Father, that uh, even on this day, uh, you might enable some who are here to hear that music for the first time and by your Spirit's work in their lives, enable them to, to put their whole weight upon that music, to trust in Christ, and to be saved on this day. So come. These great ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, what I want to think about together with you uh, is the power of approval in our lives. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge theme in this passage. And uh, Jesus does some surprising things right off the bat. Um, in verse 1, it's like Jesus uh, pauses with us at this fork in the road. And he says, now... Um, I want you to look down this fork of the road, and I want you to look down that fork of the road. And you've got to choose. And what defines these two forks in the road is the question of approval or reward. What reward or whose approval are you going to seek in life? And he's talking to those who are his disciples. He's not talking to the crowd at large. He's talking to those who are already his disciples And he issues a very uh, powerful warning. He says this in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now what's surprising about that is Jesus doesn't say uh, you should practice your righteousness for no reward. It's not what Jesus says. That's kind of what we think he says when we read that really quickly. But what he's saying is, it's right to practice your righteousness for the right reward, for the right approval, and what's wrong is to practice it for the wrong approval. And that warning is so important. Both forks of that road Uh, are so important to Jesus, he basically makes the same warning, repeats the same warning, uh, five more times. So in verse 2, when he's talking about almsgiving, he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Literally, they've been paid in full. That's all they're getting, the praise of others. And again, when he talks about praying, verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, in both those cases, as we saw last week, Jesus doesn't say, so give for no reward and pray for no reward. He says, give for your Father's reward, pray for your Father's reward not the reward of men. And then again in verse 16, right? Talking about fasting. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward paid in full, right? And again, he doesn't say fast for no reward. What he says is fast for the right reward, fast for the right approval, fast for your father's approval. And then in verse 21 and 24, verses 21 and 24, he gives us two 
principles that cover all these areas. He says, number one, and mo- most of the time people read verses 21 and 24 and limit their significance to money. And I think that's mistaken. Jesus is talking about two masters and about two different kinds of treasures throughout this whole chapter. One specific application, which we'll talk about in two weeks, has to do with our relationship to money. But Jesus, is when he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, he is talking about a principle that applies to the entire life of a disciple, not just with respect to money and possessions. And in the same way, in verse 24, when he says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll, despise, or he'll love the other and will love one and despise the other. You can't serve two. You see, he says you can't live simultaneously for the approval of men. You can't make that your master and also have God as your master. And Jesus knows that even in the lives of his disciples, the power of approval is so strong. And what Jesus is doing as he stands with us at that fork in the road is he's saying, okay, whose whose approval defines you? Whose approval shapes your life, wields more power to shape your life? The praise of men the approval of men, avoiding the disapproval of men, or the approval of God and avoiding the disapproval of God. See, Jesus knows that we are, he knows a human heart is a treasure-hunting heart. He knows that God has made us to seek after rewards. And he knows that the the master a person serves is identified by the treasure the person seeks. And so he puts this question to us this morning, all of us, through whose eyes are you going to view yourself? Are you going to view yourself and live according to how men perceive you? Or are you going to view yourself and live according to how your father seeks you, or perceives you. Approval, our longing for it, our pursuit after it, the dangers of pursuing the wrong approval, and the gift of the only approval we could never earn and which we could never lose are really the great themes that Jesus is laying before us this morning. And the, the wonder of the gospel, what just absolutely staggers me, is that, is that what Jesus is showing us this morning is, listen, friends, you have been made to seek approval. You have been made to be approved. That hunger, that longing that you have, and God's passion to approve you, meet and kiss in the gospel. You are driven that way. I am driven that way because we were made that way. And the, and the stunning announcement of the gospel is that God has acted in Jesus Christ in such a way to even be able to put his inextinguishable, limitless, positive, inexhaustible, 
approval upon us on the basis of Christ's work, and that that is what is supposed to define us as human beings. That power that is going to resonate throughout all eternity. And this morning, I want to think with you about it under three headings, our longing to be approved, our longing to be approved by others, and the Father's passion to approve us. And here's the thing. You cannot live for the approval of God unless you are living from the approval of God and with the approval of God. That's what the gospel means. You cannot live for God's approval until you are living from it. Until you are living from the approval of your Father. And I need to explain what's meant by that. You remember last week? We, we reflected on how the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's uh, address to his disciples. And so in chapter 6, when he is spending all this time explaining uh, that the nature of his disciples' life is defined in terms of their relationship to the Father and the Father's character, what is so critical to see is that all of this explanation of the power of the Father's approval, that is not a set of promises that Jesus is making to the world at large. There's only one way to have God as your Father, and it is to know and have Jesus Christ as your Savior. No one, the Apostle John says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? You can finish this for me, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, you can't have God as your Father unless you have Jesus as your Savior. But that also means that if you have Jesus as your Savior, if you have received him, if you have believed in his name, if you have entrusted yourself to him by repenting of your sins and trusting in his work, then friends, God is your father. You have more than forgiveness. You have more than eternal life in some kind of unlimited duration sense. You have the inexhaustible and unlosable, eternally secure and stable approval and acceptance and delight of God as your Father. And if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you don't possess that approval now, but you could write this morning by reading out of this Sermon on the Mount, God's invitation, God's call, the opportunity that Jesus' own work has opened up for you. And I pray and have prayed all week that you would heed that call. It's an amazing thing, friends. We're, those of us who are Christians, we live in this reality and we grow so accustomed to it that we forget how astonishing it is. So I want to go at the beginning, I want to go all the way to the back and think about this first idea, what our longing to be approved, what is that? I mean, it's with us our whole lives, right? Our whole lives. 
every area of our lives, every era of our lives. It, it comes upon us when we're little kids. We want the approval of our parents. We want the approval of our friends, of our peer group, of our siblings. When we get older, right, we, we, we want it from our classmates, our teachers, our co-workers, our employers, our customers, our congregations. We even want it from complete strangers, don't we? You ever been embarrassed in public? Why? You ever self-conscious in public about how you look? Why? Because there is something inside every... Some of you were too embarrassed to even admit that in front of complete strangers. You notice that? Do you know why you were embarrassed? When we have it, it's sweet. When we don't have it, it's bitter. When we get it, it's never enough. It's never enough. You notice that? Do you know why? Do you know why it is that we're all like that? Do you know why it is that it's never enough? Well, the Bible has a very simple answer to that question, but it is endlessly profound. And the answer is this, that desire that's with us all our lives, that desire that affects every area of our lives is there because God put it in our design. We were made to be approved. We were made to be approved by God. Friends, what it means to be human, truly, what it has always meant, meant, isn't it? Now I look like an idiot in front of you guys for my grammar, right? (laughs) Which is one of those areas I don't like to look dumb on. Praise God. Praise God. But what it has always meant to be human is to live with the approval of God. I mean, think back with me to Genesis 1. God uh, says uh, in the council of the Trinity, he says, let us make man in our image, right? And that's Genesis 1.26. And then Genesis 1.27, God makes man and woman, male and female, in his image. And then in verse 28, he's not done. Comes up with the blueprint, carries out the creation, but then he, he cannot contain himself. He has got to tell his image bearers, Adam and Eve, who they are and how he feels about them. And so in Genesis 1.28, we read, and God blessed them. And God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing. What's God doing? What God is doing in that very creation of Adam and Eve is he's saying, you have my approval. I take my delight in you. And friends, every one of us comes from that root. That encounter, that initial foundational encounter between God and his image bearers defines us. It defines you. 
Friends, it's the echo of that approval that makes you long to be accepted and approved by your peer groups. It's the echo of that favorable approval from God, your maker, that still bounces around in your heart and draws you to things that, that will be surrogate measures of, of your worth and your value. God wanted Adam and Eve to know that the power for their mission, the power for them to fill the earth, the power for them to rule and subdue it and bear his image, that that power came from his approval. They needed that power to fulfill their mission, to go into the world. He wanted them to go into the world with it. And exactly the same thing is true for Jesus and his public ministry. We saw it in chapter 3. Do you remember when Jesus is baptized? It's the beginning of his public ministry. And do you remember? He submits to baptism by John the Baptist. And the Holy Spirit comes out of the sky and descends like a dove upon Jesus. And then the Father rips the skies open and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus begins his public ministry. Friends, this is so important because he... He is the new Adam. And he begins his public ministry with the approval of his father ringing in his ears. I am well pleased in you. I have a friend who says of that, who paraphrases that moment in scripture. He says, the father rips the sky open and says, that's my boy. And Jesus moves into his public ministry through the temptation in the wilderness and all the way to the cross with his Father's approval, in the power of his Father's approval. And every fruit of Jesus' ministry grows out of his Father's approval. It's not enough for God to just give a mission. In both Genesis and Matthew 3, what we see is that when God gives a mission to his image bearers, right? He wants them to go in the power of his approval. Friends, it's true for Adam and Eve, it's true for Jesus, it's no less true for you and me. Do you know, let me just talk to my Christian brothers and sisters right now. And if you're not a Christian, you're welcome to listen and so thrilled you're here. And I know some of this probably just sounds like crazy stuff. Listen, we all once thought it was crazy stuff. I definitely thought it was crazy. But now it's too beautiful not to be true. My friends, you cannot live the Christian life for God's approval without knowing that you already have it. You can't live to the glory of God in any part of your life without already possessing to a certainty the approval of God. God wants you to go into the world with his approval and, and holding on to it, not as your achievement, not as something that you've earned or are worthy of in yourself, but to live from the approval of your Father that he has bestowed upon you through Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be truly human. That is what it means to be truly redeemed. That longing that we have from our earliest days is not fulfilled apart from your Father's approval. 
And so you need to know yourselves. One of the things that I find so compelling about Christianity, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and again and again and again, I come back to this central question. And I had, I had a conversation with a non-Christian on Thursday night. And, and what I keep coming about this very thing, what I keep coming to again and again is, here's the deal. Does, does Christianity's account of reality make more sense of more reality than any of the alternatives? I mean, I'm talking about the whole picture. What's true inside of us? What's true about us as human beings? What's true when we look out at history? What's true when we look at nature? Oh, my goodness. This is very compelling. And you really have to close your eyes to vast tracts of evidence and data in the world and about yourself and about what the Bible's teaching is to actually come out the other way on that. I'm convinced of that. It holds up, which is exactly what you would expect it to do if it were God's word, right? So let's think about the the second point, which is our longing to be approved by others, because that's a a powerful force that Jesus identifies right in verse 1. God's made us, right? We've seen that God has made us with this desire to be approved. He he means to send us into the world with his approval, to be defined and empowered by his delight in us that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And yet we live in a world, so that's this vertical dimension. We live in a world, right, where we're, where we're constantly around other people and where one of the huge questions in our lives is, well, how do we, how do we deal with the, the issue of horizontal approval, the approval of others, and the reality that we want to be approved by others, right? And so I want to think about two things. Uh, Well, really three things under this heading. One is where it's legitimate. Two is where it's illegitimate. And three, uh, it's limits. So let's think about how it's legitimate. Now, uh, like so many areas of biblical wisdom, uh, the Bible is never simplistic, but it is often simple. And this is one of those areas. Uh, You know, you you can often define foolishness in terms of the extremes, so, for example, if you could read verse 1 where Jesus says, hey, don't practice your righteousness. Beware. This is, not, this is scary. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. Uh, because if you do that, you're not going to have any reward from your Father of Heaven. Now, a, a foolish person would read that and say, okay, that means I should despise what other people think of me. And that what holiness really means to live for God must mean that I must cut myself off totally from caring one whit about what other people think of me. Well, that's not right. And the opposite extreme is wrong too. You can't prize, you can't despise people's opinions of you, but nor can you prize them too highly. So there's a place, right, for the legitimate uh, desire to please others and be approved by them. Husbands, you think it's legitimate for you to want your wife to be pleased with you? Your answer, you guys should all be nodding. Yes, she's looking. 
Wives, do you think it's legitimate and to the glory of God for you to, to be pleasing to your husband? Is it, is it a God-glorifying thing for a wife to possess the approval of her husband? Well, I, I think if I read Proverbs 31, it sure sounds like the Holy Spirit thinks it is. Is it right for children to want the approval of their parents? Yes. Is it right for an employee to want the approval of his employer? Yes. Is it right for a Christian to want his or her brother or sister to approve of him, to love him? Yes. What's not okay is when that desire gets too big. When that desire is actually what you desire more than pleasing God. All those things are wonderful, and they are rightly to be desired, provided they are the byproducts of a greater desire to please God and to have His approval. Now, I did a lot of reading over the last couple of weeks uh, from Richard, on this theme of man-pleasing from uh, the Puritan Richard Baxter, who, among his other ridiculous Herculean feats in the ministry about 400 years ago, I wrote this book that would probably, you know, if I put it on the roof of the church, it'd fall right through. It's really big. And it's called A Christian Directory. And he deals with all kinds of issues in the Christian life. And he's got a section on the sin of man-pleasing. And I, I came across something in what he said in that section that just absolutely blew me away. I've never thought about it. And, and just as I thought about it, I thought, I need to share this with you guys. Because this just, under this whole idea of where it's legitimate for, for us to want uh, to, to be approved by others. And, and Baxter, I'll spare you the, the 17th century language. And I'll just try to summarize it. Baxter says this. Now think about this. I've never heard anybody say this before. He says, listen, your neighbor has a duty to love you. Right? Your neighbor has a duty to love you. And your neighbor doesn't always love you and therefore is in sin. And before we get too smug about that, Baxter says, now, the question is, is the reason your neighbor doesn't love you because, is because you're a jerk? Because you're making it hard for your neighbor to love you. There's something about you that's displeasing. There's something about you that you need to work on your own self to get out of your life so that you'll be easier to be loved by your neighbor. And Baxter's saying there is a scope within the scriptures for the legitimate desire of the approval of others. So, you know, I commend that to you, husbands and wives and friends and parents and children. Children, think about this. Is there something about you that, that you know that this is one of these areas in your life that your parents keep circling back to over and over and over again, and you make it really much harder for your parents to delight in you because you fail to address those issues in your life. Help your parents obey God and seek their approval in that way. Husbands, is there something in your life that is making it much harder for your wife to obey God. Get it out of your life so she can obey God. And the same goes for you wives and brothers and sisters with one another. 
So there is a legitimate scope, but it can become illegitimate, right, when we are mastered by that desire, when it becomes the master we serve rather than God, right? You cannot serve two masters. When it becomes a competitor for God's approval, well, how can you tell? Well, one way you can tell is when this particular person or these particular people, when their praise takes you too high, their criticism takes you too low, and the absence of any kind of feedback from them makes you worried sick. That's a good indicator uh, that there is somebody whose approval uh, you need too much. Now, why does this matter? Let me tell you why it matters. First, it matters because if you are too dependent upon another human being's approval of you, uh, then you are using them in a way that is going to prevent you from serving and loving them and from serving and loving God. Do you know that if I am too dependent upon someone else's approval, I will not be able to love that person in any true sense. I will not be able to serve that person. I will be able to use that person, but not love them. Because anything I do, I'm doing because I want to get something back from them. I've got to get their approval or their acceptance or access to something that they have. And we all have relationships like that. Think about who's coming to mind right now. Somebody who who we're afraid of for whatever reason. They're a gatekeeper on something in our lives. And, And our if our hearts, if we could see our own hearts, our whole course of dealing with them is trying to manage their disapproval and gain their approval. And do you know what, friends? You cannot love that person if that's a dynamic in your relationship with them and you can't serve them. They are serving you. You are sowing seeds into their lives of whatever, whatever kindness or thing you're doing, good deed you're doing, you're doing that so you can reap the harvest. And that's not love. That's using people. And that's turning them into a substitute for God. It's a serious sin. And that happens not just to adults. It happens to kids and teenagers. That's what peer pressure does. It's peer worship. It's using other people to get acceptance or welcome or some kind of status. Adults do that too. But kids, this applies to you. And we must not use people, we must love them, and we must not use people to be a substitute or a surrogate for God. That is a grave sin. We end up violating both the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. And what are you going after? What are you getting when you have the approval of men? Just think about how weak it is. You know, Jesus was so free to love us and so free to serve us because he was the one man, the one man who without flinching and without any compromise and without any variation and without any up and down but perfectly stable all his life lived for the approval of his father because he was living from it and because he did he was the man most free to love and serve other people and we're his people. What do you get when you get the approval of men? One of the things, you know, Jesus, when Jesus is talking about money and possessions in chapter 6, he says, hey, just think about this. You know that Ferrari? It rusts. You know that uh, Armani suit? The mods will get it. 
They're fragile. And we should think exactly the same way about the approval of men. They've got, the, the approval of men rusts and it has moth holes in it, doesn't it? I mean, Baxter's so wise. It, it, You've got to preach these limits to yourself as an antidote, right? You've, you've got to talk yourself through this. You've got, to, you've got to expose them for what they really are, whatever the idol is in your life, but particularly on this one. You have to think it through. Okay, can you really please all people? If you're dominated by this sin, just know this. Baxter's right. You have as many masters as you do beholders. Oh, I thought, I thought that was such a good quote. By the way, just so you know, when you, when you study a text like this and God calls you to preach a text like this, guess, what you, guess what's in front of your face all week long? All the beholders that you feel beholden to. And Baxter says, listen, you could have one beholder whose approval matters or you'll have a world of beholders who you have to please and never will be able to keep them pleased. And the opinion of men goes up and down. It's variable. It's like a, it's like a weather vane on the top of a roof. It, it goes up and down. It's easily lost. It's superficial, right? It's not based on all the facts. Our cheerleaders don't have all the information. Our critics don't have all the information. But our father who sees in secret has all the information. Why would we prefer their approval to his. The approval of men is unreliable. Men mislabel things all the time. Think about our culture. What our culture says is great and what God says is great. Do those overlap? What our culture says is wisdom and what God says is wisdom. Baxter has another image. He says, listen, you could have a guy who's ignorant go into a pharmacist shop and start relabeling all the boxes and and put, he puts poison on the labels of some of the boxes and antidotes, uh, antidote on the other boxes. And the fact that he has labeled them poison and antidote doesn't change their essential nature. So you dare not walk into the shop after this ignorant man and, and rely on those labels. And the same is true with the approval of men. The only way to know is what God's approval is. It's so inadequate. What have you got when you got it? I had a fourth grade teacher whose name was Miss Hubbard, and she terrified me. She, 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 she was on, this, she was an amazing lady. Her dad was stationed at Pearl Harbor the day Pearl Harbor was attacked. And she was such a tough lady. I mean, when she would walk, now of course I'm looking at her through fourth grader eyes. But she would walk in that room and I would tremble. And when she told us that Pearl Harbor story, I just had this vision of her riding her, you know, with the zeros coming overhead and her riding her bike down the street with her father's sidearm shooting at the zeros. That's the kind of lady she was. Okay? She frightened me. And she taught me handwriting. Cursive. She don't like my cursive. I used to tremble like a leaf when she would come over to my desk. Now, you know what? I have not thought about Miss Hubbard's disapproval of my handwriting for decades until I was getting this sermon ready. Now, how come? It's not because my handwriting has improved. It's because I know 
that what once seemed so big and important to me actually matters very little alongside the verdict of approval that I was made to receive from God. So you get the approval of men, and what have you got? Something very weak. Friends, over against all of that, over against it all, over against all the opinions of the world, over against all the the favorable blessings of the world and all the curses of the world, stands the Father who is not reluctant to approve his children, but has a passion to approve his children. Right? I mean, we can talk about the weaknesses of men's opinions all day long, and we can poke holes in them, and it's wise to do that, but it's not sufficient to do that. The best and only cure, and Jesus knows this, for the fear of man is to see the Father's passion to approve us in Christ. Right, this wonder of the gospel where our longing to be approved and God's passion to approve us, those things meet and kiss in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely stunning that God's passion to approve all who would trust in Christ far exceeds our longing and hunger to be approved. There is always a surplus. Do you, do you know why we hate criticism so much? I mean, I have a theory about that. It's the same theory uh, that, at least to me, explains why we all have these dreams, and I'll admit it, and maybe you will in the door and not here, but we, don't we all have those dreams? And they're, they're kind of humorous, right, where we, all of a sudden, we find ourselves in situations where we're either in our pajamas or we're naked, and we're standing in front of our class, giving a presentation, or we're in court, or we're doing something public, and we become aware of ourselves. Apparently, I'm going to go to the funny farm because none of you are acknowledging this. (laughs) But that's only because, yeah, listen, I am so on to you, so just don't even bother, okay, don't even bother. But this is, this is significant, right? In all those dreams, what, what are the common elements? Exposure. Shame. And when I have those dreams, some, some, some self-consciousness, right? Some awareness that, that people are watching us and that we are found wanting or unprepared. You know what I do when I have those dreams, man? I wake myself up as fast as I can. Now, those are funny dreams, but I think they have a, I think they have a very serious side to them. And I think it's the same serious side that's present in every, every pursuit of ours where we are looking for validation. Every pursuit in life where we are longing to be found acceptable and approved. And I believe that the root of those dreams and the root of those pursuits is that, is that they are an echo of what we all know.
because we're humans. The echo that we know we are being evaluated and one day we will face an evaluation, an ultimate evaluation that will go down, that won't be superficial, it won't be like in our dreams where they're just looking at the outside of us, but it'll be an evaluation right, that will go down to the roots of who we are, that will take in our entire lives. Friends, these things, I believe, are are pointers to the ultimate reality that you and I know and we mislabel. And Jesus has come into the world to tell us that reality is both worse than our nightmares and so much sweeter than our sweetest dreams. Reality is scarier than our worst nightmares on this, right? Because Jesus has come into the world. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? And what he means is that God has come. God has broken into his creation. And the day is coming when all of God's image bearers will be called to account. But the present age is an age of mercy, an age of opportunity. And Jesus is saying, the judgment has come. We will be evaluated. Our sense that we can live on our own, for our own, with no one's scrutiny except horizontally or our own, those days are done. Because God has actually entered the world personally. Paul says in Romans 14, he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now who, who could possibly withstand his scrutiny, my friends? Let alone come out of that scrutiny with a verdict of approval. But that's only half the story that Jesus has come to tell us about because the other half is sweeter than our most wonderful dreams. Because Jesus has said that the judge, the one who will scrutinize us, wants and is passionate to do this, wants to approve us. Now, how can we know that 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 is his desire? Because of what he's done Friends, I'm not just talking optimistic sentiment here when I say that the Father has a passion to approve us. I'm telling you what is true. And the reason we know it's true is because of what he's already done. He sent his son, the one telling us about this Father, the one telling us about the urgency of being approved by this Father is the one the Father has sent. And he has come to live the only life that's ever been lived that was exclusively lived for the approval of God. And because he lived every moment of his life for God's approval and was unsullied and unpolluted by a desire to to use people to give him what only God could give him, he was then qualified to act as our substitute because we haven't lived that way and to give himself into our nightmare, to be the one who was exposed, except for him it wasn't a nightmare, it was his reality, to be the one who was exposed, to take into himself everything about us that merits God's disapproval, to be made to be made what is disapproving about us, all the things about us are sin that make us 
in ourselves unable to withstand God's scrutiny. And Jesus willingly took all of that into himself and then willingly placed himself under his Father's disapproval in our place. You see, the way you know that God is passionate to approve you is that he was unrelenting in his determination to disapprove of his Son when his Son was made sin. He was unwilling to spare his Son that nightmare because it was the only way. Oh, it's an amazing thing. And then he raised him from the dead to prove what his opinion is of him. To hold him out to us. And then to offer that risen Christ who's vindicated by God, rejected by the world, rejected by each of us, right? but vindicated by God, and then not only overturning our disapproval of Christ, right, but the Father then goes even further and then offers and gives that risen Christ with all of his benefits and with all of the approval of God upon him, then gives that Christ to you and me, sinners, and says, I invite you to participate and I welcome you into my approval of my Son. Friends, that's what the call to conversion is. When you see God is that passionate to approve of sinners, that kindness, that love, when you see the lengths to which he has gone in Christ to make his approval approval available to you, then that is when your resistance to admitting that you need a Savior gets broken down. And you can admit the truth and discover and experience the wonder that God is passionate to let you, to invite you in, to welcome you, to clothe you, to drench you with his approval in Christ. The approval of men is impossible to get and keep. The approval of God is possible and eternally secure if you come to Christ. The approval of men is superficial and shallow. The approval of God goes down to the roots of who you are and is based on all the truth about you and the whole truth of Christ's worth. And there is a triumphant verdict of approval that comes out of that truth upon you when you trust in Christ. The verdict of men is fragile. The verdict of God's approval in Christ can never be removed from you. Friends, there is no greater security, there is no greater treasure in life that, can, that a human being can possess. Your heart was made by God to hold this treasure, to be held by this treasure. It is the approval of your Father. So I urge you, to go into the world, to go in the world to live for the approval of God this week by living from the approval of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to uh, each one of us now in some moments of silence?
In Jesus' name, amen.